Afghanistan 2015. Linda Ligon and Mary Luttrell are sitting in the Kandahar airport, but there's a problem. The Afghan woman that they'd flown halfway around the world to see had forgotten to meet them there. There we sat at the airport in in Kandahar, you know, thinking, well, now what are we going to do? You probably know this, but Afghanistan is one of the most dangerous places in the world to travel, especially if you're a woman. And in places like Kandahar, you don't just rent a car or call a cab. You need an escort. Linda and Mary were on a journey that would eventually take them inside the compounds and the homes of Kandahar. But they weren't there to report on the war or politics or the Taliban. They were there to tell a story about women and embroidery. You're listening to Fiber Nation, a knitting podcast that goes beyond knitting. I'm Allison Korleski. In this first episode, we talk with Linda Ligon, owner and publisher of Thrums Books. Thrums' goal is to document textile traditions around the world, but Linda's personal mission is to tell stories, to give a face and a voice to indigenous people who make exquisite cloth, often in the face of enormous hardship. But sometimes the best intentions can go awry and end up possibly endangering the very people whose story you're trying to tell. Linda Ligon has a long history running magazines and media companies. But in 1975, she was a high school teacher who'd just given birth to her third child. She decided to quit her job to become a full-time stay-at-home mom. But it wasn't exactly the best fit. Well, I'm not good at being a housewife. And I knew that I would be a, become a bitter bitch if I didn't. <laughs> Sorry, did we bleep that? If I didn't figure out something to do. Besides, you know, take care of this lovely baby and, you know, try to wrangle my household. Linda taught journalism, and she loved weaving and spinning. And in 1975, fiber arts were a big deal. A magazine devoted to them not only seemed logical, it sounded fun. But that first interweave magazine was not a typical how-to-craft kind of thing. Oh, no, it was people stories. It was people who wove and spun. I mean, it was... There, there were interesting people in the craft in those days, as there still are, but fascinating stories that weren't being told. So as soon as I was able to uh, break loose from home, usually with my three children in tow, we would go on road trips and meet people and interview people and talk to them and get their stories. Though Linda turned Interweave into a successful media company, she really wanted to focus on books, and she wanted to do them her way. That opportunity came after she sold Interweave in 2007 and started a new company, Thrums. And I love making books. I mean, that's what I love more than anything. So, uh, you know, at that point, I had the freedom to make the kind of books I had always wanted to do that aren't necessarily... uh, you know, viable in the marketplace, but they're important. What I had had dreams of doing from way back in the 70s was, wouldn't it be great to just go around the world and find interesting people making gorgeous stuff and just talk to them and find out what that's about? And so that's basically what Thrums Books is, is seeking out wonderful traditions and then explicating them and putting them on record. Now, while Thrums Books covers global textiles, the driving force behind every book are the stories behind the cloth, not the cloth itself. If you look at the cover of any Thrums Books, you're going to see people, not fabric. 
Some are weaving or spinning, but most are looking straight into the camera, as if to say, here I am. A book might be about woven cloth from Guatemala, but first and foremost, it's about the women who weave it. There's a lot of publishing on techniques in indigenous textiles. I mean, they're, and they tend to, those books tend to be somewhat academic, and it's wonderful research, and it's important. But, you know, that's being done, and it's the humanity behind the work, the humanity behind the cloth that is interesting to me. It's preserving the stories, the impulse behind it. Why, you know, why are these cultures continuing? Why are the women, mostly women, sometimes men in these cultures, continuing to pursue these ancient traditions? You know, they're keeping things alive that are important to them. And I've, I'm just fascinated by them. I, mean, I, I love knowing more about that. I had gotten acquainted with uh, the woman who founded the Center for Traditional Textiles of Cusco, or a woman named Nilda Kalanyapa. She's a Quechua woman who has accomplished astonishing things in uh, bringing back and sustaining the traditions of her people. Quechua are indigenous peoples of South America, and they trace their lineage all the way back to the Incan Empire. Nilda wanted to do a book that would document Andean weaving traditions going back thousands of years. But Linda? Linda had another idea. I said, well, let's instead make a book that the tourists who come to Cusco will buy so that you make a bunch of money and then you can and then you can publish these other things that are, you know, important documents. And that is exactly what they did. That book, Weaving in the Peruvian Highlands, led to another one, Faces of Tradition. And that book really solidified Thrum's focus on humanity, not just handicraft. Our photographer, Joe Kokas, said, boy, I just would love to come back here with a full studio set up and photograph these beautiful elders, these old people who are passing on what they know and uh, so we did. I mean, it was it was like, yeah, why don't we do that? And uh, but so within a matter of months, we were back down there with a full studio set up. We went to all ten villages. No, we went to nine of the villages. One was way too remote. And we photographed the elders, and we recorded their stories, and made a book that I'm extremely proud of. Peru had a pretty rugged history in the last 50 years with the Shining Path and, the, you know, and the overthrow of the Hacienda system and the uh, reassignment of lands. And, you know, there was just a lot of turmoil. And, uh, that, but, you know, the weaving persists. They still have the knowledge and the skills, and they're doing their best to pass it on. With her books, Linda wants to tell stories about preserving traditions and passing them on. But she also wants to tell stories about upending traditions. And that brings us to part two of our episode on Thrum's books, Leaning In in Guatemala. I need to give a little bit of background here. NGOs, or non-governmental organizations, They often try to help indigenous communities by selecting a local craft, like weaving or pottery. And then they have local artisans create things to sell overseas. And we have all seen this stuff, and we've probably bought some. 
It's a really good feeling to know that that bag or the earrings that you bought are helping people somewhere. But there are skeptics, a lot of skeptics, including Linda. Let's be frank about it. Uh, NGOs, non-governmental organizations, don't have a very good reputation among indigenous people because what they typically do, it's, you know, well-to-do Europeans or uh, North Americans who come in who have some means, and they organize women, they organize people to make product that they will then sell, and then they do that, and then they're gone. So what you end up with, you have extremely well-meaning people, and they create a business that supports a community for a while. But once they leave, the artisans don't have the connections to sell their goods overseas. And this stuff that they're making doesn't necessarily have value in their own communities. Then Linda had heard about this co-op in Guatemala that did rug hooking. I want to take a second and point out how weird this is. Traditional Guatemalan weaving, it's some of the finest in the world. Why would a group of highly skilled women set that aside to learn rug hooking of all things? Linda dug a little deeper. It seems a bunch of women were trying to take that, that NGO business model and turn it upside down. Linda just had to do a book. It's called Rug Money. Frankly, when I, when I met Marianne Wise, the author, uh, one of the authors of the book, I thought, why, why do you want to teach these women to hook rugs? Well, she, she had a whole different vision, and it was brilliant. It has been absolutely brilliant. And she has built an organization for sustainability. She's built an organization that she can go away from, and it will sustain itself. And, you know, the fact that she was teaching these women a different uh, technique that they'd never done before, um, it, it, she, took it, she took it from technique to art because they can use rug hooking to express themselves artistically using, using their, you know, using their own cultural iconography. And, and they make these stunning rugs or wall hangings or whatever they end up being. So these Mayan women, rather than take their traditional craft and adapt it to Western tastes, these women took something that was completely foreign to them and adapted it to their tastes. And they were really good at it. That stuff sold. And there was this big plus to hooking rugs. Well, it was cheap. They use cotton t-shirts that are imported into Guatemala by the tonnage. Those used T-shirts you send to Goodwill or the Salvation Army, most of those are not actually sold here. They're bailed up and sent to other countries where they get turned into other things. They're cheap or free. And so that was part of it, you know. And, uh, and, and the technique is not difficult, and it's portable. A key point here is that, unlike NGOs, Marianne didn't tell the women what to make or how. Instead, she gave them formal art training so they could design for themselves. They learned that she had training to teach teachers, so they now teach each other. And she's had leadership training that has helped the women become comfortable expressing themselves. Yeah, it's, it's been really transformational. And they took business classes. They took courses in leadership. They learned to run their own business, a nonprofit co-op called Multicolores, not just make stuff for someone else to sell. 
It's Linda's hope that Rug Money will encourage other groups to take this approach and empower women to create their own businesses based on their own decisions. It might sound like Linda has an agenda for Thrums, to bring change as much as to sustain tradition. But during our interviews, Linda stated repeatedly that she never started out with a vision or a grand plan for her work. She just wanted to talk to people she found interesting who were making beautiful stuff and find out more about them. She wanted to tell their stories. And this is where things get complicated. There's something in physics called the observer effect. This is the notion that just observing a situation or phenomenon necessarily changes that phenomenon. And that leads to the question, is Thrum's books itself affecting the lives of the women they document? Up to this point in our program, Thrum's books has been a force for good. Traditions are preserved, cultures are honored, new paradigms are promoted, and Thrum shines a light without any romanticizing on the women keeping their traditions alive. But what happens if that desire to document might maybe accidentally backfire? And to understand, we need to go back to the beginning of the show with Linda waiting in Kandahar Airport. She was there to meet Rangina Hamidi, an Afghan woman who was writing a book about hamak embroidery. Hamak is this intricate geometric designs worked in very fine silk thread. It is, um, oh boy, it's extremely fine. It's basically satin stitch, but really tiny exquisitely perfect satin stitch embroidery on an even weave fabric. And it's particular to Kandahar in southern Afghanistan. And it has very ancient traditions and it's very highly valued there even today. And um, yeah, so the women in the book... Embroidery within boundaries are working in that tradition. Like so many of these fiber arts, hamak is a way for Afghan women to raise themselves out of poverty, or or at least lessen its burden. And Rangina saw its possibilities. Rangina was born in Afghanistan. She and her family fled Soviet invasion when she was four, and eventually settled in the U.S. In 2003, she decided to return to Kandahar to help rebuild her country. And I should point out at this point that I was unable to interview Rangina for this episode, so relied on Linda to tell me everything from this point. Anyway, Rangina went on to found Kandahar Treasure, a woman's cooperative. It supports hundreds of Afghan women by providing supplies and paying them to do this hamak, all without foreign interference or aid. Oh, yeah, yeah, that that was what she did when she went back. I mean, with some false starts, she... She founded this workshop. Now, an interesting thing about it is she didn't do it as a nonprofit. She said, I want to make a business that sustains itself, that isn't dependent on grants and donations. I want something that's producing product of value. And I I really appreciate that point of view. And so she did. She started this this co-op based in Kandahar, and she gave the opportunity to women in the villages in the surrounding countryside to do the work they, that they knew how to do, and at one point had as many as 400 women who she was giving, you know, she was buying their work, buying it outright. By helping these women earn money, she was helping increase their value to their family and to their community. 
In a country where women don't have much value to begin with, that's a big deal. Now, embroidery is something that many of these women had done since childhood, and they were very skilled at it. So these housebound women could earn money by doing work they already took a lot of pride in. It was a really smart way to help women while remaining within the cultural boundaries that constrain them. And people outside of Afghanistan were taking notice. Mary Luttrell, a professor and specialist in folk art, was one of the people who heard Rangina speak at a conference. She approached Rangina about a book to tell the story of these women in Afghanistan. Rangina's response was pretty blunt, something along the lines of, I don't have time and I'm not a writer. Mary took the idea to Linda, saying, well, I am a writer and I do have time. So eventually the book, Embroidering Within Boundaries, was born. One of the most remarkable things about Kandahar treasure is that it exists at all. The rise of the Taliban has made Afghanistan, to quote the co-op's own website, the world's worst place to be a woman. And Kandahar, in the southwest part of the country, is the seat of Taliban power. Decades of war have devastated the country, and around a third, a third of Afghan women are widows. Remember what I said earlier about women in Taliban-held areas not being able to leave the house without a male escort? How do you support yourself, your children, if all the men in your family are dead and you can't leave the home? These women, uh, the women of Kandahar Treasure, they're not educated. They've not been allowed to leave the home, you know, except accompanied by a man or a boy or any male, <laughs> any male person. And uh, they lead very, lead very constrained lives. And uh, so one of the reasons Rangina chose embroidery as the means for them to create a sellable product is because it was traditionally acceptable. Embroidery is what it's okay for women to do. I want to go into this a little deeper, particularly in smaller villages around Kandahar. Taliban officials can often be aware of women's activities, like frighteningly aware. And I know this sounds strange to us in the West, but but think about it for a moment. You live in a small town where the city council and the chamber of commerce know what your local weaving guild is doing. And they might have opinions about it. And if they don't like it, they might try to stop you to the point of threatening you with violence for weaving. Rangina knew that this type of work was safe because sometimes it's best to remain invisible. So she provided the materials for them to work with. I mean, they had no income in many cases. Many, many of the women of Kandahar Treasure are widows, maybe widowed two or three times over because of, you know, the war has wiped out the male population of that country. And they had no means of support. So she was giving them the materials and then collecting their work creating very demanding standards of quality, and the, the work is exquisite, and then she was buying it outright. A big help is that this embroidery is still highly valued in Afghanistan and not reliant on Western interests to make it a profitable business. I mean, there is an upper class in Afghanistan. There's, you know, an incredible income disparity there. So there are a lot of wealthy people in Afghanistan, and they value this. It's it's part of their culture. So they, you know, a bride has a trousseau, has a, a baby, has a layette, and they want this traditional work for it. So there is a local uh, market. 
If Kandahar Treasure had to circumvent a lot of barriers to operate successfully, so did writing a book about it. Forget traveling to these women's homes and interviewing them. It was hard enough to get from the airport to Rangina's home. Rangina forgot to come pick us up. I was traveling with her co-author, Mary Luttrell, and Rangina had the day wrong. <laughs> so there, there we sat at the airport in, in Kandahar, you know, thinking, well, now what are we going to do? Eventually, they were able to get in touch with Rangina, and she sent a car and a driver to the airport. But no, you, we, we couldn't travel there. We went directly to the Kandahar Treasure compound where Rangina and her husband and daughter lived and where the women came to work, and there we stayed. With the driver and guard, Linda and Mary were able to visit some of the women's homes within Kandahar. Venturing beyond the outlying villages where so many of these women lived, that was way too dangerous. Public places within the city, like the markets, those were off-limits too. And needless to say, they had to be completely covered whenever they left the compound. And we were covered. Yeah, we had we had our uh, burkas, and we wore our burkas. And, and they are not nice. They are, you know, they're, uh, it's hot. It's hot in Kandahar, you know, 90 degrees, and you're under this, under this nylon tent with just a little screen that you can peek out of, and that's how women... That's how women get around. Despite all this, they managed to interview several women for the book, and they even went to an Afghan wedding. But while they were careful to observe customs and not draw attention to themselves, it was inevitable that two Western women would draw attention. At the wedding, Linda remembers being stared at, in her own words, for an incredibly long time by a whole crowd of people. And this is where things got a bit hairy. Around halfway through their stay... One of... uh Rangina's friends was actually assassinated on her way to work at the uh, at the uh, United Nations mission. Now, no one knows why she was killed. As I've said several times, it's a dangerous place. Rangina's friend was outspoken. She worked outside her home, and she worked for a foreign entity. Any one of those things could have made her a target. Or maybe none of those things. Maybe something else entirely. We will never know. Linda points out to me that investigating a woman's murder wouldn't have been a priority for the police in any case. But it made them think, what if they were putting women at risk just by being there? We realized that, you know, having two Western, strange Western women, and people were starting to talk, you know, having two strange Western women in your compound was probably not a good idea, and going out into women's homes was really not a good idea. So uh, we came home early. A whole week early, just in case. There's a lot of drama in this story, and it's easy to lose the point behind this book, behind all of Thrum's books. And that's that cloth, woven or embroidered or knitted or whatever, that cloth is made by people, and those people have faces and stories. Stories, whether big or small, that matter. At one point I asked Linda if the Kandahar women were okay talking to them, to having a book done about them. They were lovely. Again, you know, they were so pleased that we cared. They were so, I will, I will, one of the things I'll never forget, I, I'm an early riser. Uh, so I was up very early one morning and I had my knitting and I was sitting in one of the common rooms tending to my knitting and nobody else was up. And the woman who 
uh, sort of was the housekeeper for Kandahar Treasure, came in and saw me knitting, and she just, well, I mean, it was very emotional. She came over and saw what I was doing, laid her hand on my knitting, laid her hand on my breast, and just looked at me. I mean, we had no common language whatsoever, but she was so touched that a Western woman who understood about handwork would come there to appreciate their handwork. It was, it was, uh, it was extraordinary. And once the book was out, it got a great reception, particularly in other parts of Afghanistan. Well, the after effect has, has been pretty wonderful. We did a launch party actually at the Afghanistan Embassy in Washington, D.C. The First Lady of Afghanistan, Rula Ghani, attended and brought several hundred copies of the book back to her country. As for the women in the book, many are still working for Kandahar Treasure. The organization has had ups and downs, and, uh, you know, for a lot of reasons. And uh, so at any given time, there are might be different numbers of women doing the work or having their work purchased. Uh, But, you know, they continue to run the program and do the work and distribute the textiles. Rangina, meanwhile, has moved to Kabul to start a school there. She still helps run the co-op and continues to be, in Linda's word, a force of nature for the women in Afghanistan. In Peru, Nilda Kalanyapa continues to run the Center for Textiles, it currently supports close to 400 women in 10 villages. Marianne Wise, who founded the Multicolores Co-op, is currently working with women in over a dozen countries, including Afghanistan. I ask Linda if she thinks Thrums had anything to do with the success of these groups by raising awareness of them. I think that's overstating it. I mean, Nelda is a force of nature. She's an amazing woman. She was an amazing woman before I ever published a book with her. And you know, she's on her own trajectory. I mean, again, Mary Ann is an amazingly forceful, visionary woman. Still, she believes the stories that Thrums tells has a positive ongoing effect, even if that wasn't her original intent. I mean, if you imagine some grand plan, it's not there. You know, I, I do the work that's in front of me. And that was true beginning to work with Nilda, and now we've done one, two, three four books together, Um, and I think it's made a difference for her organization. I think it's brought, I think it's brought attention in some good ways. It's validated a lot of her work. Um, It's done the same for Marianne. I mean, there's something about having, about, about having a book about your work that makes it, you know, that makes it important. I mean, it's already important. It brings it to the world in a, in a way that can open up other opportunities. We bring stories about ourselves to the things that we make. And these things that we make, they reveal where we come from and the traditions and histories of the craft itself. As Linda has shown, everyone, no matter where they are, has a story. And those stories are worth telling. Thanks so much for listening to Fiber Nation. You can find more information about Thrum's books and the organizations featured in this episode on our show notes page. If you haven't already subscribed, find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. 
Fiber Nation is a production of FNW Media Studios. It's produced by me, Allison Korleski. Our consulting producer is Ron Doyle. Our audio engineer and editor is Evan Rutherford. And our executive producer of podcasts is Jared Mayer. Thank you.